A third wave of coronavirus infections is hitting Canada more severely than any other stage of the pandemic so far. We'll assess why. One of South Africa's most important archives is destroyed by wildfires that began burning on the fringes of Cape Town on Sunday. We'll assess what can be salvaged when the irreplaceable appears to have been lost. And the future of the workplace will be under discussion at Collision, one of North America's largest tech conferences which gets underway here in Toronto today. Monocle's editors are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the Late Edition here on Monocle 24. It is Tuesday the 20th of April and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. And with us today to discuss the day's news are Monocle's Europe editor at large, Ed Stocker, and Monocle 24's Daniel Bache. Daniel and Ed, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Uh, how's the week starting off for you there in Milan, Ed? It's going very well, thank you. Uh, after a few uh, dreary days, I have to say that the sun is back and spring is in the air and uh, quite a lot happening. We've got we've had a pretty uh, packed schedule, as I may have mentioned on, on Monocle 24 uh, on the late edition before. Um, you know, we've just come out of the May issue. Uh, we're working on the entrepreneurs, which I believe, Tom, we're going to talk a little bit about later on. Uh, and then we're straight into June and there's even talk of newspapers. Uh, so plenty to keep us uh, busy uh, and, and plenty to tantalise uh, monocle readers and listeners. No rest for the wicked, Ed, to coin a phrase. And Daniel, how's the week treating you there in London so far? Is spring, uh, spring eking into the, the atmosphere there too? Oh yeah, full-blown spring, Tomas, which I love, which means uh, lots of nature, lots of flowers. Uh, the sun has been out, it has been crisp, uh, that's your weekly weather update, but have been enjoying uh, more walks around town, more bike rides, of course, into the office. Uh, we have a few new starters uh, with Monocle 24. I'm sure you know Tomas, so it's been fun to get acquainted with uh, some of our new faces and voices uh, and to talk all things radio. And of course, always have my eye uh, on the world of entrepreneurship. And uh, we can get into that when we talk uh, about collision a little bit later, I think. We will indeed. Daniel Bage and Ed Stocker, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, we begin here in Canada, where rates of new coronavirus infections are worse now than they've been at any other stage of the pandemic so far. Ontario, where I'm speaking to you from today, is arguably facing the greatest challenges of all of Canada's provinces. For almost one week straight, daily records for new infections have been set, while intensive care units in some hospitals are nearing capacity. A field hospital here in Toronto is expected to begin admitting its first COVID-19 patients today in an attempt to ease some of the strain. Well, the blame for this third wave of infections in Canada is being squarely laid upon variants of the virus. And on today's edition of The Briefing, Monocle's health and science correspondent Dr Chris Smith explained why the variants were posing challenges to vaccination rollouts. The reason that we're seeing variants cropping up at the level that they are, despite the fact that coronaviruses actually, in the grand scheme of things, evolve quite slowly, is because there are millions of cases of coronavirus infection. With Brazil and India producing and declaring hundreds of thousands of cases a day, those are just two geographies where there is enormous amounts of sort of rolling of the genetic dice. Every time the virus grows and spreads, 
and it has an opportunity to adapt and change. And it's doing that in the face of a population that has partial immunity. So there is a game of cat and mouse going on, population immunity versus viral innovation mutation. What will tip the seesaw will be that we slowly increase the number of people who can't be infected so that the virus is playing its hand less often and this gives it fewer opportunities to adapt and evolve and eventually it will slide off the seesaw altogether. Dr Chris Smith there speaking to us on the briefing today. Daniel perhaps you could outline for us why Canada particularly is in such a precarious situation now at this stage of the pandemic. Yeah, a really tricky one, Tomas, and it's uh, difficult, I think, to talk about uh, spring here as things are reopening in the UK and in uh, Ontario specifically and across Canada. I think it's safe to say the mood has moved from confusion to rage in a lot of corners. Uh, This has been part of a, a wider trend, Tomas, as you know in that Canada doesn't have its own production capacity, so they have been completely reliant on other countries and uh, those big countries that they uh, did a good job of signing contracts with earlier in the pandemic, but uh, the slow trickle of vaccines has made it a real issue and uh, the rollout and confusion over the rollout has made things uh, further worse. You heard uh, Chris Smith uh, talk earlier today on the briefing about priorities and uh, Canada followed suit with a lot of countries, including the UK and vaccinating the eldest and most vulnerable population. Uh, but the, the question now is, well, should we uh, be vaccinating the people that are at the highest risk of spreading uh, coronavirus and particularly these new variants? There have been many outbreaks at workplaces, Tomas, and this is a, a trend that's gone back uh, for the entire past uh, 12 months from, uh, you know, manufacturing facilities, food production plants, uh, uh, big uh, logistics centers, and, and now even some offices as well. So uh, variants tied to, to a lot of workplace uh, outbreaks and uh, Peel region just outside of Toronto actually talking about uh, closing down businesses where there's been five or more confirmed cases coming from uh, one place. But uh, yeah, again, it's, it's difficult as things are opening up there seem to be getting a lot worse as uh, Canada moves into its uh, third wave. Uh, Just incredible stories across the newspapers uh, today, Tomas, and the images of uh, a number of hospitals in Ontario, particularly where where the outbreaks have been really bad, uh, setting up field hospitals. Sunnybrook, uh, one of the biggest in Toronto, has a military-style tents and operations in their parking lot uh, as ICUs are are overflowing. So a very difficult uh, conversation. Uh, or a very uh, difficult uh, situation uh, and the conversation about the rollout uh, just isn't going away because there still seems to be widespread confusion on uh, when and where people can get uh, those vaccines and, and when more will arrive. And I think it's worth noting that the public messaging at this stage during the vaccine rollout, Daniel, feels pretty poor and last week Justin Trudeau, Canada's Prime Minister, um, offered to send the Canadian Red Cross to Ontario and to Toronto uh, to help with the vaccine rollout given that it has been so sporadic and so slow. Uh, That was ultimately rebuffed by Ontario's Premier, uh, the Conservative populist Premier Doug Ford who is having a pretty torrid political time of it himself at the moment. Uh, There are growing calls for him to resign given just how severe things have become here. But Ed, to bring you in here, while all this 
is unfolding here in Canada. Uh, the US, south of the border, announced yesterday that every American adult over the age of 16 now qualifies to get a coronavirus vaccine. Well, I guess it's not totally possible to compare both countries like for like. Do these respective situations now in either place feel like a bit of a reversal in fortunes in your mind? I mean, definitely, because I remember... Uh, when I was based in the States and obviously Donald Trump was in power, um, you know, just how lethargic the whole uh, vaccination process was. And and obviously we've talked about this on Monocle 24 uh, and and we've talked about it here on the late edition about, you know, Donald Trump's, uh, one might say, scepticism and whole approach towards uh, the administration of vaccines and really handling the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, which kind of saw him reluctant to be that sort of uh, leading figure, preferring to sort of let uh, the states take control, then blaming those states for not doing enough. We've seen a very different approach, obviously, from Joe Biden, who sort of, uh, you know, targeted uh, Independence Day uh, in the US as sort of being this uh, symbolic date that the US was sort of be vaccinated. Um, It's a big turnaround. And obviously the fact that... um, all adults, you know, are, are, are now able to get this vaccine is um, a pretty incredible uh, situation to be in. Uh, you know, the US is up there uh, in world leaders, you know, obviously not right at the top. We know that Israel has been particularly good. Um, but over 200 million uh, doses have now been administered in the US. Um, it's, you know, not uh, 100% rosy, only in the sense that uh, there are still certain things to be ironed out in the US, for example. Uh, there are reports, for example, that around a fifth of over 65-year-olds in the US have still not even had one dose. And so obviously they are a much more uh, vulnerable segment of the population than some of the younger people who are now um, uh, uh, eligible to have uh, their jabs. And there is uh, worry in some circles amongst some epidemiologists and scientists, for example, uh, that uh, uh, some of these older people may have sort of trouble competing for a shot now that all adults are eligible, that they'll be sort of uh, um, worried away uh, from going to some of these uh, vaccination centres with so many people sort of trying to get their jabs. Hopefully that won't be the case. And, uh, you know, when we look... Uh, like you were saying, Tomas, uh, 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 the situation in North America, two very different pictures have now emerged between uh, the US and Canada. Well, next here on the late edition, wildfires that began encroaching on the city of Cape Town on Sunday morning have swept through one of the most important archives in South Africa. The Library and National Archive at the University of Cape Town was consumed by fire yesterday. And on today's edition of The Globalist, we spoke to the South African journalist Marvin Charles, and he gave us this overview of what's been lost. Basically, all of the historical collections have been lost completely. And what people need to remember is that this is not only books. It's basically, you know, newspaper archives over generations. You know, the historical Mandela newspaper has been stored there. 
bats also being engulfed by the flames. And it was of historical value to everyone and to the public as well. Journalist Marvin Charles there speaking to us from Cape Town a little earlier today. Ed, the fire on the campus of the University of Cape Town is reportedly largely under control now and some 4,000 students uh, who live and study there were evacuated safely before the flames arrived. But the images of the fire at the archive are, are pretty staggering really, aren't they? And I suppose it poses the question of how you even begin to start piecing back together collections like this after an incident like this has unfolded there. Yeah, absolutely. Shocking images and just, you know, so sad. You know, such an important archive uh, of Southern African history full of, you know, first edition books, photos and films, basically all these incredible uh, primary sources uh, that really have charted a history uh, of Southern Africa and, and and those are potentially lost. I mean, we know for sure that there is loss. The extent um, will not be known yet. Obviously, they have to get back in there and see what's damaged, what's savable. Uh, a big bulk of that archive uh, was in a basement and, and, and some believe that that may have been saved. But then, you know, there's other reports that it could have been flooded when the firefighters were, you know, trying to extinguish the fire um what we do know is is sadly um only a small amount of this archive was digitized it is a a painstaking and lengthy process you know there were some 3500 archival films as i said it's a very slow process to do and 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 only a a very small amount had been digitized so 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 we know that that's the, the the status of that and and that's sad but let's hope that you know there is a significant chunk that is savable and just adding a final point about fires and and archives or, or or historic sites there's something about that isn't there that sort of catches our imagination this idea of knowledge or learning that's sort of destroyed by these flames you know even the burning of the library of alexandra alexandria which is sort of clouded in myth this was meant to be this library that sort of housed scrolls of knowledge from the entire world um from India to Egypt and Persia. Uh, some say that Julius Caesar uh, burnt it down uh, in around 45 BC. But as I say, there's sort of different stories and myths around that. But even uh, something more recent captured the world's attention, which of course was the fire uh, in Paris, the the burning down of, of parts of, of Notre Dame. Almost two years uh, to this day, back in april the 15th of 2019 and you know the 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 two-year anniversary was celebrated recently and we sort of had an update on how the reconstruction of that cathedral is going and president emmanuel macron really uh getting involved as leader of the nation to ensure it happens and on time so so it's just yeah these images really do uh, remain in your mind and especially when it's such an important part of history let's just hope that at least uh, part of this can be savable uh, and part of this amazing uh, collection of primary sources like i say will be able to live on uh, for future generations 
And Daniel, as Ed touched on there, I guess now it turns to a question of restoration. And that term, I suppose, is a pretty broad one. It strikes me, well, what, what it reminded me of the events in, in Cape Town was the, the burning of the Glasgow School of Art a few years ago. And obviously that was set alight twice in quite quick succession. Uh, the masterpiece Art Nouveau building right in the centre of Glasgow. I know you lived there uh, several years ago. I wonder how, therefore, you think we even begin to start sort of reclaiming maybe even the atmosphere of a place uh, that has been damaged in some way, if, as Ed mentioned, there some some parts of the collections are sadly perhaps lost forever yeah really good question and uh, thanks for pointing that out Tomas that was very difficult to watch the uh, the Glasgow School of Art and obviously I lived in Paris as well so uh, seeing Notre Dame uh, on fire a few years ago was was quite difficult but I think uh, to your point it's about the spirit of the place uh, that existed and its purpose and and preserving that for future generations to learn and to create use the example of Glasgow obviously a protected building uh, uh, designed by Charles Rennie McIntosh, very celebrated as one of the most famous in the city, undergoing one restoration before it catches on fire again. And a lot of people up in arms uh, about what that new design would look like or uh, bringing their opinion on what it should look like. But I think a lot of uh, the people at the Glasgow School of Art and in the city pointed out that the point is uh, to preserve uh, the institution and what it's there for. I think the difficult thing for South Africa is a lot of um, artifacts that have been destroyed. Uh, as I was reading today by, by some South African journalists, uh, they point out that they tell a certain perspective of the country's history that might uh, not have uh, been shared widely yet and, and particularly a different view of apartheid and a different view of, of, of the country and the nationalities there. So that's something interesting. Obviously, not everything had been digitized. That is partly a solution, but, but not everything. And as I say, I think it's about preserving the institution and its purpose. Well, finally, here on the late edition, one of North America's largest technology conferences, Collision, gets underway here in Toronto today. And as the event's founder, Paddy Cosgrave, told us, the future of the workplace will be central to the virtual gatherings agenda this year. All of the leading companies are represented and a lot of people are interested in, you know, what's Google's vision for the future of work? What about Facebook? What about Amazon? There's the positive chatter about innovation and the innovation those companies are still doing. And then, of course, that's balanced uh, with quite serious and heavyweight discussions about the future of antitrust as well. I think a lot of people over the next three days uh, will ultimately focus, and we can see this from people's schedules that they're building out. People are fascinated uh, with the future of work. They want to know, as the pandemic subsides, will they be mandated to return to their offices all over the world? Are companies beginning to see great benefits and is work from home or some hybrid model here to stay? Paddy Cosgrave there, founder of Collision Conference, which begins here in Toronto. Today, Daniel, you spoke to Paddy for us. And what struck you about the conversations that are likely to take place at Collision this year? Did Paddy give a sense that this is all going to be pretty solidly tech-focused? Or were there other, maybe more tangible elements of our notions of work and workplaces that will be under discussion as well? 
Yeah, some of the big uh, leading speakers uh, and uh, coming from a lot of the big tech companies, uh, as Patty points out, are going to be talking about just that, the future of work. It's obviously a very important uh, thing that that a lot of smaller companies, investors, uh, people that are stakeholders in this event, participants, they'll be looking for some guidance on on where we go from here. Uh, Obviously, it's hopeful and from our perspective that a lot of people are talking about uh, the future of of offices and and creating uh, vibrant places to work and cities as well. Samasi, you've covered Collision and, and know the importance uh, for people in coming to Toronto and mingling there. Patty and I uh, spoke at length as well about the importance of in-person summits. They have Collision and Web Summit have the advantage of being a software company so they can pivot quite quickly to hold something online. But Patty pointed out something I thought was quite interesting in in that the future of events would really be about having some sort of hybrid model between uh, how you uh, maximize uh, the event's potential uh, for people that want to take part somewhere further afield and do that uh, digitally while also getting a lot of people in person. I think that would be more important for Toronto because obviously there was the big story in the the past year about Google pulling out of the the smart city uh, development. Uh, So uh, obviously it would be better if it was being held there uh, in person. Obviously that's not possible, but uh, a lot of those those big companies will be talking about uh, uh, the future of work and and the future of, of getting back to business. And Ed, as you mentioned at the beginning of the programme, we are all this week putting the finishing touches to the Entrepreneurs Monocle's uh, biannual magazine on entrepreneurship around the world. And the idea of the future of work, the future of workplaces is a pretty central theme to the issue this year, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty central theme, I think, to Monocle. It's something we've been talking about a lot. And obviously, uh, since the start of this current uh, pandemic uh, predicament, I'd say it's become... uh, more of a central theme i mean i interviewed um diane hoskins a co-ceo at gensler architecture design architecture firm uh for the may issue and she was sort of talking about this conundrum the future of the office we're looking at the future of the office and sort of the future of how we work in the sense that for example to give a very brief description of one of the articles i won't give too much away uh, in uh, the forthcoming entrepreneurs issue we're looking at a a sort of tech hub on the beach in Portugal, uh, which is near Lisbon, where people have been moving uh, to start ventures, people who can work remotely or simply are able to start a company out of a big city. And the fact that they are still half an hour or so drive from the capital, from an international airport, but uh, have a, a more affordable uh, lifestyle, And, uh, you know, more importantly, perhaps able to go surfing every morning. So this idea of just rethinking how you work, working in a smarter way, for sure, uh, uh, and taking advantage of of places like that is definitely part uh, of this issue. And we're also in a rural rural spot in Australia where people have been moving uh, a few hours from Melbourne. So, yes, that's definitely a central theme, Thomas. Well, pitching up on a Portuguese beach, Ed, to start the workday with both you and Daniel Bache there as well. That sounds like a pretty dream work scenario to me. Thank you very much to the two of you for being with us on the programme today. That's all we have time for for today's edition of The Late Edition. Today's programme was edited in London by Sam Impey and Steph Chungu. A big thanks to them, as always, too. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But for more news and discussion, do be sure to join The Globalist, which begins 
begins live from Midori House in London at 7am London time. I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Oh,